Hello, and welcome back to the Cold Case Frozen Tundra podcast. I'm Dr. Jordan Karsten, an anthropologist, university professor, and your co-host into the ongoing search for answers in the disappearance of Lori Jean Depes. And I'm Matt Hiskus, your co-host along with Jordan, and it's good to be back. If you're joining us for the first time, we're very glad you've tuned in. Uh, but we also encourage you to first listen to the prior episodes in this season of the show. It's been several weeks since our most recent episode came out, and today we'll be providing a small update on our progress to follow up on those leads that have been uncovered through research, tips, and interviews as we created the podcast. We've also received many questions from those who follow the show about the case, about making the podcast, and more. While we continue to work to get to the bottom of some of the new leads, we wanted to also take today to answer some of the questions you've submitted. In fact, your questions lead right into our updates. So Jordan, why don't we start there? Yeah, that makes sense to me. Let's begin with those questions that are related to our progress as we follow up on some of the leads generated through this podcast. I should note here too that you might notice our format's gonna be a little different today than in our typical episodes. We wanna give you our actual responses to your questions and we haven't scripted each response. So if it seems a little less formal, that's why. Our first question comes from Jason, who while noting he understands we can't get too deep into the details, wonders if there are some insights that we can provide into the nature of the leads and the work that we're currently doing to follow up on them. Do they pertain to a new suspect or maybe someone we've already covered? He also wonders if we can speak to a little bit about our opinions on why, after so many years and after other media publicizing the case, we've been able to uncover some new leads. You want to start with your thoughts on that, Matt? Sure. Um, and probably the first thing to mention is we still can't talk a whole lot about the leads. Um, and that's because we don't want to jeopardize an ongoing investigation. To us, this podcast is very important. We care about it and we want to share the information we have. But when we take a step back, we realize that the investigation is even more important. And the last thing we'd want to do is release information that ends up jeopardizing the credibility of that investigation. What I can tell you is we are making progress on those leads. There has been work done to follow up on them. And as we're working with law enforcement and some other agencies, there is some additional planning that is required, which is just causing it to take a little longer than anticipated. And we've run into some unforeseen challenges. We do still expect in the coming month or so, there will be a substantial effort to see if the leads go anywhere. The one thing I will add with regard to uh, Jason's question on if the leads point to a new person or someone we've publicly discussed before, I'd say that's a little tough to answer because the lead our main lead doesn't necessarily point to any one person or another per se, but instead it, it's a lead that really would probably help us find out what happened to Lori after she was abducted and ostensibly killed. Yeah. I mean, if somehow we're you know lucky enough to find and recover Lori's remains, it'd be a huge break in the case. Um, it would provide answers at the very least to the question of what happened to her um, back in the early 1990s. Analysis and maybe some other clues that could be found might point to a killer, but that's really hard to say, at least in terms of a you know, specific killer. Uh, to get to the question about new leads cropping up now, 30 years after she goes missing, I think there's several reasons why this might be the case. One is that as time passes, people's attitudes towards about talking 
and talking to law enforcement or or you know going on the record with certain types of tips can change i mean people just a lot of times become more comfortable talking we saw this in our first season when we looked at the murder of starkey swenson suzanne eggert who is the ear witness to swenson's murder did not talk to law enforcement with specifics back in the 1980s but 10 years later when they kind of took another fresh look at the case she decided to come forward because she felt comfortable talking to the police at the time she felt in danger back in the 80s felt comfortable in the 90s and so that's not something that's super strange and so the same thing could be happening here some people might have known something back at the time or around the time of Lori's disappearance and now they feel comfortable enough to talk about it but at the time they didn't um some another thing that could lead people to start talking to us or bringing tips forward now is the fact that back when Lori went missing you know there they might have had a little piece of information that they thought a lot of folks had and they just figured that the police knew about and so they didn't reach out to them with that kind of info with even just a small tip um you know after 30 years they might figure hey any little thing can help i'm going to make sure i reach out this time and so they get a hold of law enforcement or us uh, and tell them this small tip when they see on the news that a podcast is covering um you know boy Depp's disappearance in detail uh another issue i think is kind of the the ease at which you can report tips back in the 1990s you had to call law enforcement and then that typically meant you had to sit down with them for an interview um, that makes a lot of folks uncomfortable most people don't want to call the police at all um, but in today's day and age you know they they maybe see that we're covering this they listen to the podcast and they decide to just hop on the internet over at our website to give us a tip or maybe they look my email up on the uw oshkosh website the anthropology pages you know website and they um you know they they contact us with a tip that way it's a lot easier i mean it barely takes them a couple minutes to come forward with a tip whereas back at the time um you know you would have been dealing up close and personal with law enforcement and i think one thing to add to that is just the fact that probably in a lot of ways folks are more comfortable talking to podcasters or some university professor at their local university than they are talking to law enforcement and that could also be part of the reason that we've been able to bring forward um you know tips now 30 years after the fact yeah all right our next few questions are about larry duane hall who we covered at length in the third episode of this season you may recall that in 2010 larry hall surprised investigators by admitting to abducting and killing Lori. However, despite this and the fact that he was voluntarily giving information to officers and you would think he'd want to prove he's credible, he hasn't to this day provided any additional evidence that corroborates his story or leads investigators to Lori's body. And so probably with that in mind, Frank asks us our first question, which it's pretty straightforward, Jordan. Uh, he wonders if Larry Hall is still considered a suspect in Lori's disappearance. Yeah, I mean, the short answer to that is yes. Um, I think that anytime somebody confesses, they're going to be a suspect, even if they walk that confession back until law enforcement are able to conclusively show that they didn't do it. And right now, because there's just not basically any physical evidence in this case, 
they no one can prove that Larry Hall did it or didn't do it. And so for that reason, Larry Hall remains a suspect in Lori's disappearance, as he does in many murders across the United States. I think it's definitely still possible that Larry did it. Um, but the fact that he's admitted or confessed to killing Lori and then was unable to provide useful information. And he's done that same thing, um, you know, for many missing women a- across the, you know, the Eastern half of the United States calls into question his credibility, certainly. And so, um, yeah, I mean, he definitely remains a suspect. Um, he definitely could have done it, but I think there's some good reasons to, you know, question if it's the most likely or if, if Larry is the most likely individual, um, you know, kind of in the suspect list. Yeah, absolutely. I think you summed it up pretty well there. He's definitely still a suspect though. I think I can take this next question, which comes from Gavin and it's also related to Larry. Gavin asks, have you talked about the new Greg Kinnear show? Uh, If you're not familiar, I think he's referring to Apple TV's new series, Blackbird, which has been released in the past few weeks or month or so. Uh, In addition to Greg Kinnear, it stars Taron Edgerton, Ray Liotta, Sepi Demoafi, and Paul Walter Hauser, who actually plays Larry Hall. We did post a, a small link to the trailer on our Facebook page, but I don't think we've spoken about it in the actual podcast. So if you're curious about it, the premise of the show is based on an actual event. It's something we actually did briefly reference in our show in which kind of a local hometown hero and football star, Jimmy Keen, is arrested as a drug dealer and ultimately transfers to Larry Hall's prison in hopes of getting him to confess to other crimes in exchange for a commuted sentence. We, we didn't have any hand or weren't consulted in creating this show at all. So we don't have any behind the scenes details for you, but I have watched the first couple episodes. And from what I've seen, I can say it is an interesting show. I think it's gotten pretty good reviews too. Um, And it is based on that real premise with that said, and perhaps not that surprisingly, there's a lot that I think is exaggerated or just deviates from the facts just to make it more entertaining. So I would definitely recommend it if you're into that type of show as an entertainment product, but I don't think Jordan or I would recommend it as a historical accounting of the factual record. Um, There's a lot that's left out there or changed entirely. We do have a few other questions here too about various other suspects or events in the case. The first one comes from Stephanie, who asks if anyone's considered that it might be possible Lori didn't drive her own car to Mark's apartment on that night, but that instead the perpetrator did it. She mentions that this could explain the lack of struggle at the scene. What do you think, Jordan? Yeah, I mean, I've actually heard this kind of theory of, you know, what might have happened to Lori from folks I've talked to um, over the last several months since we started releasing this podcast. Um, I think that that scenario is possible and in fact actually has been considered by investigators, but there's some things that make it not very probable. Um, probably the biggest one is the fact that Lori's coworker, Tammy, who closed up graffiti that night with Lori, walked out after they finally got over their computer problem, um, walked to their cars together. She even saw Lori get in her car and drive away as she left the mall that night. And so that means for this scenario to be true, 
um, Lori would have had to stop somewhere between the mall and and Mark Trubenbach's apartment um, to uh, to basically be carjacked at that point. Uh, and I there's the timeline is tight for that to have occurred. Um, we also she was on the phone with the folks at Mark's apartment, and you know she did not say that she was stopping anywhere. She was coming there um, to get ready to go watch a movie. Uh, and so I think that, you know, even just the timeline of it and the fact that Tammy saw her leave makes it really tough. Uh, then let's just say that she does stop somewhere. Um, and she is abducted by whoever that perpetrator might be at that point, that perpetrator would have to know that Lori was on her way to Mark Trubenbach's apartment. And that seems really unlikely. Um, especially if, if we're talking about Larry Hall, or David Spanbauer, they would have no idea where she's going. Um, although they could have maybe made her tell them, that seems like a bit of a stretch. Um, and so, yeah, that makes it, I think, to me, even less likely. Uh, then just the idea of even going to Mark, you know, if, if somebody did abduct her and then they decided, well, they want to like leave the car somewhere um, in order to throw investigators off their trail taking the car to her boyfriend's apartment is a huge risk because the chance that when he pulls or whoever the perpetrator may have been would have pulled up in Lori's Volkswagen rabbit, the chance that someone in that small parking lot could have seen them get out of the car, driving the car and reported it would have been huge. And so it's so risky that it just doesn't, that also seems unlikely. And so when you consider all of those aspects of that kind of scenario, although it's possible, I think it is very, very unlikely. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, so we've got another question here. Rich asks uh, about another individual that was mentioned in the podcast, which is Lori's friend, Mary. He mentions that she sounds like a possible suspect that she and Lori's decision to spend less time together sounds a bit strange, um, especially just for a friend to say, uh, and that their age difference makes the relationship just seem odd. He wonders if Mary was ever investigated. You want to take this one there, Matt? Sure. Um, to refresh your memory, the the Mary we're talking about is Mary Hanson Pokey, who's a 30-year-old woman and a close friend of Lori's. And she's come up a couple different times, actually, as we've told this story, the most notable of which is that Lori spoke with her the morning of the day she disappeared before her shift started. And as Rich mentions in that interview that Mary gave police and, and actually reporters, she, she mentions that Lori and her decided to spend less time together, which is kind of an interesting way to phrase it. But um, she talks about how Lori used to spend a lot of time at her house, babysitting their kids, did her own laundry there, and even knew where items were in the house that Mary didn't know just because Lori was there so often. Other people we've spoken to describe Lori and Mary's relationship as sort of a mentor and mentee friendship since Mary's 30 and Lori was about a decade younger. The second time Mary came up in this story was when she was interviewed later by reporters, and she told them that she suspected Lori was followed from the mall, and she said Lori was nice enough to people that she would have allowed a stranger to approach her and have a conversation though this is a fact um, in the same story that's kind of contradicted by others of Lori's friends who thought that she would be much more wary of a stranger. So um, those are the two times Mary came up 
specifically. To get to Rich's question, it is our understanding that Mary was investigated to a small extent, like many of Lori's other friends and family, especially given the fact that they had spoken on the day that Lori went missing. Those relationships and interactions are just kind of some of the typical places investigators start looking when a crime like this occurs. In researching this case, we did receive a tip from a friend of Pertie Pokey, who's Mary's husband, who's since passed away. And the friend told us that Purdy did think Mary and Lori were together too often, and he thought the amount of time they spent together got in the way of his and Mary's marriage a bit. Um, and the person who gave us that information did mention that it was provided to the police back in the 90s. So we can assume, given this, that it was investigated to some extent, and I guess I would say that it must not have been determined to be that valuable. Yeah, I'd also add that there's never been any reference in any of our conversations with those who knew Lori uh, to her having anything more than a friendly or mentoring relationship with Mary. By all accounts, Lori and Mark had not been dating for more than a few months, but were very smitten with each other. Uh, There's no indication that Lori had any kind of romantic interest or something like that outside of Mark Trubenbach. Yeah, that's a great point. We have another question here from Rebecca, who asks about another suspect we've covered in the case. That's Tim, which, of course, is a pseudonym. But she asks us, if Tim killed Lori before arriving at the party, wouldn't we think he'd have blood on him or maybe have showered and changed? And she wonders if anyone noticed if he was dressed differently from his work that day. Jordan, you want to take that one? Yeah, sure. Uh, We can start with the second part of that question, whether anybody reported he changed clothes. We've not heard anyone reference anything like that, that he's wearing something different when he arrived at the party at Rob's apartment. Um, I'd add that we haven't heard that he was definitely wearing the same clothes either. Um, But given the degree to which something like that would have changed the understanding of the case, I think it's safe to say that this detail not being in the reports, coupled with the fact that those at the party wondered what he'd been up to and where he'd gone, leads us to believe he didn't shower or change. I think the timeline is also, as we've covered you know, in earlier episodes, is just so tight that the idea that you would be able to shower and change doesn't really make sense. Um, I would expect, too, that we'd see others at the party mentioning that he must have just been at home showering and changing um, if they noticed he was wearing different clothes or had wet hair or something like this. Uh, that leaves the question of blood on his clothes. And yeah, I guess that that is strange, um, you know, especially given his bizarre drawings uh, that night that included the drawing of a knife. But I also don't know that that excludes the possibility that Tim could have abducted and killed Lori. Um, you know, it's, it's a bit morbid to talk about, but... Uh, blood doesn't have to be involved. I mean, you can hit someone, you know, with a fist hard enough that could potentially kill them. And that's not going to result in a lot of blood or any blood at all for that matter. Um, Strangling is another way that people can kill folks and not have it result in, you know, a whole bunch of blood. It is even possible. And I think it's really worth mentioning the fact that Tim could have met up with Lori in the parking lot at Mark's, sat with her, was angry because he felt like maybe she had turned down his advances um, and then reacted in anger either through hitting or strangling or something like this. 
that could have killed her, even though he maybe didn't show up there meaning to do that. All of these things are possible. Um, I think the one thing is, is the fact that he doesn't have bloody clothes and doesn't appear to have had time or have gone home to shower and change his clothes. It means it probably is unlikely that, you know, he, he stabbed her if he was responsible, but that doesn't eliminate those other things that I just was chatting about. Okay. Now we have a few questions about the podcast in general. And the first comes from several people, actually, all of whom have asked about our relationship with law enforcement, um, whether they have an issue with the podcast and what it's like creating a podcast about an ongoing investigation. Yeah. And I think we both have a little we can add to this one. Um, but I'll start by saying that we enjoy what I think is a pretty good relationship with law enforcement. In creating the podcast and planning any season, any of the two seasons we've had of the show, we try to keep a couple goals in mind beyond just putting together an interesting story. There are goals that probably are much more important than that. One is we want to know that the work we put into the podcast, any information we turn up has the ability to make a difference in the case. And we, we really try to focus in on having that ability to impact the investigation. And a great way to do that is to have a good working relationship with those who are assigned that case. The second kind of goal we have is that we want assurances that our podcast is not going to impede any ongoing investigation in any way. We, we don't set out to have our show be the reason a case doesn't get solved or get in the way of solving a case. And so I think that we've been able and fortunate enough to establish a relationship that is such that we're able to meet both of those goals. Yeah, I'd agree. Since I work with law enforcement on a fairly regular basis to excavate or identify bones, you know, I have many conversations with investigators um, and I have a lot of connections to the people who investigate cases across the state. Um, before launching both the seasons of our podcast, we had discussions with the people who were assigned to the cases, whether the publicity we wanted to bring would benefit the investigation. Uh, we also regularly share details that we uncover with them in the hopes that one little detail might be enough to work something new and um, you know, kind of develop something new, get a new angle, maybe even see one of these cold cases through um, to being solved. I wouldn't say that our relationship's so close that we're given unrestricted access to case files or anything like that. That's definitely not the case. Um, the details that we share with you are in most cases are either details that we've personally uncovered through people we've talked to outside of law enforcement or details that are publicly available. Um, there are plenty of details that investigators keep secret. Um, said so only those that are involved with the crime would know it. And um, with that said, we do have the ability to ask questions, and, and by them I mean law enforcement, to get their insights on the case and uh, you know generally share information with detectives and 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 investigators. Um, and as you can probably guess from our interviews with retired DCI Special Agent Kira Shawhorn. Throughout this season, they're generally supportive of our work and the fact that some new attention that we can bring to the case might just be the reason that a new tip comes in um, that you know can help them solve it. Yeah. And it's worth also mentioning with this question that there is one impact of our close relationship that maybe other podcasts or media outlets wouldn't necessarily need to consider, though. I definitely think it's one we both agree is a worthwhile trade-off given the ability we get to help impact the case is 
we do sometimes get asked by investigators when we when we turn up new information to maybe keep that secret as has happened this season and on the one hand we know this is a podcast and we want to keep everyone informed but as we mentioned earlier when we really step back and think about the fact that there are family and friends and community members and some some of whom even listen to this podcast who are impacted on a much deeper level by these cases it's really a small sacrifice in our minds to keep some information out of the podcast even if it is very interesting um in order to allow investigators the opportunity to do that work and maybe turn that information into something that really brings new information. So related to um, that actually is a question from Kelly who asked if we can explain some of the reasons why we chose to work on this specific case, meaning the Lori Deppis case this season. Jordan? Yeah, I mean, some of the main reasons are things that we've already talked about here today. Um, which is that we felt that we could potentially impact the case by reinvestigating and drawing attention to it, especially after, you know, the the relative success of our first season. Um, also, the investigators and, and people close to Lori were supportive of us doing this, which is also a big factor. Um, you know, when we started our first season, actually, uh, I was told by many people including coworkers, that we should consider looking at Lori Deppis. And I'm not originally from the area, so the name didn't mean that much to me right at that moment. Um, but it's definitely a case that is, even though it's almost 30 years old, it's one that people really care about. And so by just covering it in the podcast, you're just guaranteed to get folks to pay attention. Uh, and that's all you need, right? It's for people to pay attention, decide to come forward with a new tip. I think also as an anthropologist, I'm drawn to cases where in addition to being a mystery, um, you know, there's not been a body found. And so the work that I do with police often is, an, you know, kind of working with them to find clandestine burials. And so if we can bring forward information where I might be of help in that, you know, that I'm drawn to cases um, where I'd be able to, you know, maybe use my own scientific expertise to actually participate in bringing closure um, for her family and friends. Yeah, and beyond what Jordan mentioned, I think as we started to look into the case a little bit, hearing from people uh, that this is a good case to cover, one of the things we realized pretty quickly is that it's a case that's really received a lot of attention over the years, but it spanned decades, right? This investigation has been going 30 years this year, and it hasn't necessarily been told in one cohesive story like we're able to do in this podcast format. Uh, there's been shows on it, but they're quick. There's been news stories, but it's been as information comes up over the decades. And so um, this is an opportunity to kind of bring all that information into one place where you can listen to it and hear. And maybe in doing so, we'll, we'll identify some gaps or some pieces that maybe fell through the cracks before. It's also an interesting case because those who might be aware of it, but haven't necessarily followed the in-depth details of the case, for a lot of those people, the case ended when Larry Hall confessed. That was picked up pretty broadly in the media. Um, it was something that we actually encounter people quite often saying, oh, you're doing the Lori Deppis case. Did Larry Hall do that? And you know, it's certainly possible. And it is one of the 
possibilities out there. But when you really get into the facts of the case and the investigators who are working on it, they agree he might be guilty, but it's not a proven fact and it's not a closed case. All right. I think we can combine our last two questions we've got here. Um, they're both related sort of to the future and the long-term plans of cold case frozen tundra. The first one comes from Linda who asked just that, what are we planning to do in the long-term? Are we going to keep going on with new seasons that are focused on other missing persons? And then a second question comes from Kendra who asks if in the future we're planning to do any updates on our season one, which focused on the 1983 disappearance of Starkey Swenson. Jordan? Well, I think when we think about the long-term future of the podcast, uh, that as long as there are cases that kind of meet our criteria where we have support from family and friends, support from law enforcement, um, and, uh, you know, if Matt and I feel that we can make a difference in the case, we'd love to keep doing new seasons. Um, focused on other missing persons, you know, in Northeast Wisconsin, I think that that would be great. Um, we also, and I think this gets to the second question, we want to make sure that we finish telling the stories we start in our, you know, in the first two seasons, that is Starkey Swenson and, and a Lori Deppes. We're currently working on our leads from this season. So, you know, the season focused on Lori. Um, and, and we'll be focusing on that before we take on some kind of new case. I think there's still work that could hopefully lead to some answers there. If you haven't listened to season one or maybe haven't seen recent news related to the Starkey Swenson case, I'll give you a quick overview of the developments, what's publicly available. Um, I suspect that might be part of why Kendra asks her question on if we're going to update people about season one. So last year, um, our search for Starkey Swenson led us to an excavation at a field in Omro, Wisconsin. And kind of as we wrapped that up within a month or so, two hikers were hiking near um, a trail in High Cliff State Park, which is a, basically directly across Lake Winnebago from Starkey Swenson's home. In fact, kind of strangely, if you're driving on the road past his old house, you can look across the lake and pretty much see the cliffs. Um, on the other side. So a little eerie there, but they were hiking and they uncovered what they thought was human remains. And so they called investigators and Dr. Karsten in his role was called to the scene to help excavate those remains, which ultimately were confirmed to be those of Starkey Swenson. More recently this year, just a few months ago, John C. Andrews, the man who spent 14 months in prison in the 90s for Starkey's murder, was again arrested and charged with the crime of hiding Starkey's corpse. Just this past week, those charges were thrown out in court and Andrews was freed. Yeah, he's, his bond was dropped. And so he was out um, on, on bond already, but that, you know, that was removed. Uh, so if you've followed our first season, you'll likely know we've said basically nothing about developments in the Starkey Swenson case over the past year. And the reason for that is the fact that I was the anthropologist that worked on the case um, and I'm part of the investigation. Uh, I don't want to say anything that could, you know, jeopardize that. Um, we didn't want to say anything that could affect legal proceeding or anything like that. Um, with that said, we're aware that there's more to this story um, that we would love to share uh, with the charges against John Andrews being thrown out. That's maybe a step 
towards our podcast being able to tell you the rest of the story. Um, but until it's official that there aren't going to be any more legal proceedings um, that we could potentially impact by sharing more, we need to hold off still. So once it's confirmed that it's you know that this process is kind of over, that I won't likely need to be a, a witness in court and Matt as well. Um, we'll be releasing more on the Starkey Swenson story for sure. I mean, that's going to happen um, sometime in the future, potentially in the very near future. Yeah, I think we, we've we known there's more to say and where we left it in the podcast is not caught up with where it is in the media. So that is something that's on our radar and something we'd love to share with those who invested time in listening to our first season. That is all the questions that we've gotten as of today. There, there may be more people posting questions throughout this weekend and, and tomorrow, Monday. Um, if you ask a question and, and it's not included in this podcast, we're sorry. We'll go back afterwards and check to see if anybody missed getting it in before we're recording here. And we'll try to answer them on social media. Yeah. And hopefully we'll be back pretty soon with updates on the Lori Deppis investigation and with updates um, for our, from our first season in terms of our investigation into the disappearance and murder of Starkey Swenson.